Welcome to the Behind the Movement podcast. I am Kyle Fincham, and thank you so much for being here and listening. Um, Also, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. um, Happy Hanukkah. uh, Happy all the things. Uh, I appreciate uh, everybody who has listened to the podcast, uh, maybe from the beginning, maybe started in the middle, maybe just started recently. yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been it's been really exciting to connect with uh, all these different teachers and practitioners from around the world, and to share it with everybody and, and receive some really wonderful messages and emails from people who have enjoyed the conversations as much as I have. So uh, yeah, thank you, thank you everybody. Um, I've got a great conversation lined up here with Rafe Kelly that I I will get to in just a moment. But I want to remind everyone that the Movement Brooklyn online platform is alive and well and available to everybody. Um, It's not just a place for content, although I do teach a weekly class and we make the recording available every week. And there's about a hundred and something classes that I, I recorded during the first six or seven months of the pandemic that are all available as recordings. And I also uh, put up a a weekly video that's either a skill or a game or an idea to to play with a little bit. Um, But along with that, I also hold a weekly office hours that are are live on there to address any questions or concerns or provide the support that I can or or maybe just have an open dialogue about all things movement. I think that might be one of my favorite things about the platform. Uh, but also every month we are doing like weekly, th- or excuse me, monthly themes or monthly focuses. For instance, the month of December, we've been focusing on resilience. Um, so we've all been taking cold showers and then also playing with different tools to work around the idea of developing resilience. Um, within the live classes and within some of the weekly skills and things. And it's also um, a place for really uh, a dialogue. We don't just put content out there and it's not just me screaming into the, uh, into the universe. Um, It kind of has like a, a live feed as you would find on like a Facebook or something. So it's a place for everybody to chime in and share and discuss and, and, and have an ongoing conversation to, to support one another. So if this is something you're interested in, um, you can go to members.movementbrooklyn.com or you can go to just movementbrooklyn.com and you will find it there. And uh, I would love to have you. So let's get to the conversation with Rafe, um, which was really awesome and and really a treat to get to connect with him. Um, our mutual friend Marlo Fiskin suggested that I reach out to him, that uh, she thought that he and I might have a lot to talk about, and it turned out she was spot on. Um, Rafe is the founder of Evolve Move Play, um, which is built around a, a philosophy of natural movement uh, that we talk a little bit about in the podcast. And Rafe comes from a, a pretty incredible background of parkour, martial arts, gymnastics, 
Um, yeah, he's a really thoughtful guy, and and he's taken his experience and his knowledge and 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 funneled it into his philosophy and his approach, um, which is evolve, move, play. And if uh, you're interested in in what he's doing, um, you can check out evolve, move, play dot com um and there's a lot on there uh to dig into and and opportunities to train online and then i um i assume opportunities to to connect in person once um things start to to calm down with the pandemic um but yeah evolvemoveplay.com is where you can find rafe um yeah let's get to it like i said amazing conversation um maybe one of my favorites here so here it is, Rafe Kelly. Hey, Rafe, can you hear me? I can. How are you, Kyle? Good. How's it going? It's all right. Yeah. It's, uh, sun's coming out, here, so that's pretty exciting. Where, where are you located? I'm in Seattle. Nice. I have, uh, I've never been, but uh, I have some good friends there. Nice. Where are you from? I grew up in Lake Tahoe, okay. um, but I was born in Southern California, and then I've been in New York for the last 15 years, and then with everything that's gone on, I've been uprooted, and now I'm in Boulder, Colorado. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Not a bad place to land, though. No, lots of good, lots of good stuff going on there. Yeah. Lots of good yeah. I, um, I, well, that was the reason I reached out to you. I, uh, so Marlo is here. Yeah. And uh, I've had her on the podcast and we've met up and we've chatted in the park and a couple times she was like, God, you really gotta, you really gotta talk to Rafe. Okay. Nice. I forget what it was we were talking about, but she said, she's like, oh yeah, you really need to reach out to Rafe. Yeah. Cool. I love Marla. She's good people. Yeah, man. Um, just so you know, we're recording. I don't know where I'll start or stop or whatever, but I always just have it set to start recording. Like right when we sit down. Adjusting the camera here. All right. Wow. <laughs> minimize the weirdness in the background there um, we go i uh i read your your bio before we chatted on on your website okay uh you've got a pretty spectacular movement background uh ranging from like the parkour to the martial arts and everything yeah. um what, what how do you spend most of your time now um on a computer <laughs> <laughs> Uh, less the less the reason this last year was brutal um, for a variety of reasons you know lots of 14 hour days um, I'm, I'm trying to I've been limiting myself to about five to six hours of work a day right now in order to uh, um, like get some recovery and refocus my life around my my children and my wife and my own practices but my, my practice right now has been uh, very much around uh, the parkour and uh, strength training. Those are my two focuses right now. I would love to be doing martial arts, but I don't have any training partners in the area right now um, who are experienced in martial arts and mm -hmm. are ready to step in with me. And I'm not super excited about trying to prep them when we could be doing parkour and we're both good at that. Uh, right. it's like, it's right. like we can have fun together doing parkour or I can spend the next couple hours trying to teach you how to, you know, throw a jab and a cross and slip a punch, you know? Um, sorry, no, that, that's not as motivating to me. I really like to be doing more martial arts, um, but yeah, all the, all the gyms are closed. All my training partners are 
who, who I do that with aren't available. So that's been a little bit hard. Um, so to, today after our call, I'm going to go out and meet with some friends to do some urban parkour. Uh, mm -hmm. And mostly it's been in the woods and we've been just starting to bring back some of the aliveness stuff. So we've been doing games of chase and tag and uh, pushing each other around. Uh, so having a lot of fun with that. And then I've been doing, uh, so I've, I've been training twice a week for, uh, for natural parkour, usually about two hours per session. And then once a week, uh, I've been doing a strength training uh, session, um, which is fun. We're kind of developing our approach right now, but we're influenced by um, by Ben Patrick and the knees over toes philosophy and what he's putting out, and by Eric Lynn and um, and Philip Chubb and mm -hmm. some of the ideas around really kind of a minima minimizing, you know, so you're not doing more than you need to. And it's really a lot of like Mike Menser kind of high intensity training stuff, but applied more so to, to uh, upper body gymnastic strength type stuff. So it's a mix of that. So we do like uh, on Monday, we did sled drags. So we started with, uh, with backward sled drags to build up the uh, decelerators and really make those knees and ankles and feet uh, super solid for all the high impact work that we do. And then we did, um, we used a, uh, a jiu-jitsu belt and we were uh, having one guy behind the other guy and perturbing him. So we're adding some coordination demand, some change of direction, some, some more adaptability uh, while we're doing that. Um, and then uh, split squats or uh, kind of feet together, heels elevated, um, high bar back squat. Mm -hmm. And pull-ups, uh, muscle-ups, muscle-up transitions. We're doing accommodating resistance. So we're hanging from each other and pulling each other down the whole nice. way, trying to make the eccentric as as um, involuntary as possible. Uh -huh. Tuck plans work, and then we do some accessory work. Uh, so we do really heavy, heavy sled drags going forward for the feet and development of the feet. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, gripping, hanging from like a really thick branch. Um, and uh, Nordic curls, calf raises, tibialis raises. So that's like a kind of a, a typical session these days. So we want to make sure that you're always doing some kind of squat, some kind of pull, some kind of press. And then we love to do some kind of uh, sprint. And a lot of times that's going to be uh, using resistance going backwards because we're just building up the resilience of the legs right now more than I'm worried about speed and power. Mm. So um, you do this only one day a week. Yeah, strength training for me is one day a week right now. Um, I, I think that's probably optimal for most movement athletes, to be honest. I think I agree. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I mean, maybe, you, maybe you've had similar experiences, but I feel like there were a decent number of years where it was like strength five or six days a week. I talked with Philip Chubb about this and just realizing yeah. that like it's not leaving the space of the time to explore all the other things to like feed yeah. our intelligence. Yep. Um, yep. So it's like, well, what is the minimal amount we need to just be resilient and um, be able to handle all the other things we want to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the standard, like, so I, I first real, so I, I guess I got into strength training really for the first time when I was 19, I think. And so I had a background in martial arts and I was playing a lot of basketball at the time. And I was also doing gymnastics occasionally. Mm 
-hmm. And I, I had a pretty good coach who kind of got me into squatting right away. And I was doing squatting and plyometrics. And I think I was doing like three sets of eight type stuff at that point. Um, mm -hmm. And then later, uh, after I discovered CrossFit, I got into Ripito. So back in like, you know, so it was, you know, four or five years later. And so I did the, you know, three by five, three days a week, right? Mm -hmm. And I had some of the athletes that I was working with, younger athletes come up with me and do that. And we did, we had some amazing impacts, right? Like uh, Justin, one of the guys I've been training with today, he, he was a really skinny kid who kind of was malnourished, right? So he graduated high school at 5'11 and um, 118 pounds. When he came to me, you know, a couple of years later, uh, he was 130. And so we, you know, we put him on a really solid diet. He, he was really smart about the diet. So he was kind of already doing that, but we got him doing as much milk as he could when he was getting like whole raw, you know, he, he wouldn't do anything pasteurized, anything homogenized. It had to be the, the real stuff. Um, and it was based, you know, he couldn't do a gallon a day because he couldn't afford it, but uh, he, was, he was doing whatever he could afford. Um, and he was doing Ripito and we put um, basically 30 pounds on him in, in six months. And we took his broad jump from eight feet, three inches to nine feet, three inches, I think. And his vertical wow. went from 22 to 28. Um, and now, now his vertical is like 36 and, you know, his broad's like probably over 10 feet. Wow. So, so we, uh, and yeah, so he's 165 um, at that point. So, so we had really good success with it, but we just found it, it burned us out on top of doing parkour, right? Like he couldn't, he couldn't handle it. So I, I scaled down to two days a week and I pretty much was advocating and, and coaching everyone to do two days a week. But then if you go back to the original literature, like why is it three, like the standard in the industry to me is three sets of three days a week, three sets of five, like that's, that's like the baseline, right? Or maybe if you're like more, um, more bodybuilding oriented, you might be doing like three sets of 10, three sets of 12, right? But if you're like a strength hybrid guy, you're doing three sets of five is kind of like the baseline. And if you look at the research, it's like, well, it's all on basically, you know, untrained white male college students, mm -hmm. right? Who aren't, who aren't hard training athletes. You know, it's hard right. to get RCTs on like, people who are super dedicated to physical practice. Right. That's a good point. And what you find a lot of the time is that, is that right in the research, it says like you get 80% of the benefit by doing once a week or 80% of the benefit by doing one set. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, we're, we're trying to optimize everything, we're trying to get squeeze the last little bit of juice out of every lemon and you can't. Right. Right. Like if, you, if you're trying to get the most out of your physical practice or your movement practice, you, you can't, you can't take, you can't take everything out in your, in your, in your strength training practice. You gotta, you gotta kind of surf those Pareto distributions, do that 20% that gets you 80% of the benefit and leave the rest. I find that uh, there's a, there, some people are confused, almost thinking that like the strength training practice is the movement practice yeah. in communicating that like, the strength training is just so we can continue doing the other things, you know, it, it, it's pick the word it's supplemental. It's, it's uh, you know, tools, it's whatever it is, but like, these are the things that like help us be able to like do the other things efficiently and, and feel a little bit more bravery in our bodies because we might be a little more bulletproof for it. Yeah. I think of it as accessory training. Another way that we think about it is that it's basically supplements, right? Mm -hmm. Movement is whole food for your body. And um, 
natural numinous whole food for your body, I should say. And, uh, and that any kind of isolated exercise protocol is essentially like a supplement. So you, you shouldn't actually need them necessarily if you live a sufficiently active life. Um, but the reality of most of our lives is that we don't, we can't live a full natural movement life because we're not, you know, for one thing, we may have years of sedentism behind us or years of specialized sport practice that we need to make up for. And further, like, you know, most of us just, we have jobs, right? right. So we're not going to be out in the sun, you know, 24 hours, you know, or like eight hours a day, uh, you know, moving, being physically active, lifting, carrying, throwing things. It's like, uh, if you live that lifestyle, you get strong. You know, there's that idea of farm boy strong, right? You get a, you get a kid who, who's bailing hay and, you know, mucking stalls and carrying water and he's going to come in and he's going to squat heavy weights and li- uh, deadlift heavy weights and bench press heavy weights um, with very little practice, but what, but they're prized um, in, in a lot of like uh, team sport context over the guys who just made themselves strong in the gym because they find that they're more resilient. They're more, uh, they're more anti-fragile. So strength that's developed that way is actually higher value. Um, whenever, we, whenever I get into these conversations about these types of people that you're describing, two people always come to my head. Uh, the first one, so I was training when I was still in New York, I was training jujitsu at Marcelo's, Marcelo Garcia. And he's a good example of what you're describing. Um, but the other one is, uh, is Bo Jackson. And I often bring him up too, because like would never go in the weight room, but was like, you know, hunting and like carrying elk on his back and trying to do backflips, standing in water and just like living this, like, as you described, like this, this fully active lifestyle. Yeah. So it's like those so, things are, are not as, are, you know, we don't need to go and get into like linear mode when you're already out there living it organically. No, it's, it's, it is, uh, it's a way of making up for something that's been missed in our movement nutrition. That's the way that I tend to look at it. I mean, maybe we can get some even dose above, above that and get like some sort of hyperphysiological response. But, um, but I, I think that there's, there's downsides to it. Um, I always talk about, um, this is a concept that I got from Katie Bowman, but something I've noticed years ago myself, uh, when I was teaching CrossFit, I noticed that all the CrossFitters had calluses at the bottom of their, of their right below their fingers. And then maybe on their fingers, sometimes just a little bit in the middle of the hand, but then there were whole areas of their hands that were soft. They're just as soft as any office workers. And everyone's always tearing our calluses in CrossFit and also gymnastics and also parkour, right? All those sports, you see this, this same similar pattern of callusing. And I noticed that when I had transitioned from doing parkour primarily in the city to doing parkour primarily in nature, that over time I developed a callus that's continuous. So it's hard to see, but I mean, I don't know if anyone's gonna be able to see that, but from the palm of my hand, from the bottom of my palm to the tip of my finger is a callus. And there's a localized buildup just under the fingers, but it's substantially less than you'd see in someone who spends a lot of time on the rings or a lot of time doing barbell work. Um, and essentially, the callus is the way that the skin adapts to being trained. That's how it adapts to being loaded. And the problem is that when you have skin that's highly adapted to being loaded next to skin that's poorly adapted to being loaded, you have a proportional uh, strength problem because you now have very strong tissue that's gonna have to couple 
with weaker tissue. And when strain goes through that tissue, it's gonna be able to pull really hard. So you don't really tear your calluses because of your calluses. You tear your calluses because they're next to weak skin. Hmm. So you can imagine that basically like, you know, imagine you say you're playing tug of war, right? And everyone's grabbing hands and trying to pull. And, and one of the guys is Superman. And the next guy is a 99 pound weakling who's never lifted anything, never been active, physically active a day in his life. Yeah. So when Superman goes to, to transmit force through that chain, he's just going to rip that guy up. Right. And that, that's basically what's happening when your your office worker skin in the middle of your hand is pulled on by your Superman skin at the bottom of your fingers. And I actually think that that's what's happening throughout our athletic bodies due to the use of exercises, which are essentially supplements as the base of our movement diet. Right. Well, the, what you're describing is like, whatever, pick the title, but like some realm of movement or fitness actually turning into a specialization. So I mean, it's, it's, we're becoming specialized into one place in your case, what you're describing is the calus. It's like a product of um, specializing in just a handful of movements. Yes, a handful of movements and, I mean, even surfaces, right? Mm -hmm. So when you climb a tree, every branch has a slightly different shape. It has slightly different, you know, um, like pressures on your hand. And so you're getting all of this diversity of force, which is uh, educating the skin, which is sending, you know, cellular signaling to increase strength in each cell of the hand. And so you're getting a distributed strength throughout that kinesthetic network, network that tensegrity of the skin of the hand. Um, and so that's creating true resilience. And what we're seeing now is that we have the strongest and most powerful athletes that have ever been created in the world. Um, and they're also the most fragile. I agree. And, and to, to kind of further your point from something that I've been thinking about, playing in constantly changing environments is feeding our like richer like intelligence or maybe call it our intuition, but like that thing that's deeper by the environments and the scenarios or the apparatuses or whatever the things are constantly changing and not working in straight lines. We're constantly having either large surprises or these like micro surprises that feed that like richer intelligence that is deeper past knowledge, right? Where it's not always like playing to our addiction to competence, right? It's almost just like let competence move to the side and just like keep having these like surprises, discoveries that come from what you're kind of describing to me feels like this more playful approach, even though it's playing with kind of deadly seriousness. It's like we're, we're playing in a way that allows us to like keep making discoveries, whether it's on the surface, like in our hands, but it's also like this, like richer place. Yeah. So we, you know, we think at different levels, right? Mm -hmm. So what I've been talking about is the level of the cell mm -hmm. and the balance of kind of the, the tissue strength. Right. And we can also think about the development of the self at the level of, you know, the psyche, the emotions, the physicality, um, the different layers of, of how you engage with knowing things about the world and whether those are well distributed and giving meaning to your life. And all those are really uh, fundamental to, to what we do. And we believe in, in every case that, um, that moving, that having a movement practice that reflects our evolutionary heritage um, 
is the most profound way to integrate every aspect of the self and to make it more anti-fragile and more powerful. So, and to have a more meaningful experience of life. So at the, at the cellular level, at the, at the tissue level, we're getting better integration of tissues when we're expressing it through a broader diversity of movements, um, experiencing a broader a variety of force vectors. And, you know, that comes through the types of movement that you do and the environments that you are expressing the movements in. Mm. And, you know, we can, we can go up a level and say, all right, well, what, you know, what are we tapping into? Like, how does the psychology, how is the psychology impacted by being in a natural space and having a relationship with that natural space and recognizing what is possible within that space? So yeah, all those are, are elements of the way that we think about it. And, and, and I guess we're kind of tiptoeing around and in some ways saying it specifically because you threw around the, you said the term natural movement. And I mm -hmm. think that that, that that language oftentimes is thrown around recklessly. People will be like in a gym or in a pickup location, they'll say something about natural movement or they'll say something about functional movement. Um, but you have a very uh, clear understanding of, of your approach to what natural movement is. And I'd love since we're kind of around that anyway, to let you kind of like clarify that so that people aren't thinking like, oh, I do natural movement, but they just do like whatever animal flow or something. Yeah, um, I just had a chat with Mike Fitch, very good dude, but uh, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so what is natural movement? Uh, natural is, a, is kind of a strange word, right? Um, because it's, it's been around for a long time and it's been loaded with a lot of meanings. So I didn't initially like using the term natural movement. I like to use the term evolutionary movement. Or, um, but over time, I've, I've adopted it because it's simply easier and it codes in people's brains more, more easily. But, um, you know, we have this tendency to think, of, you know, natural is referring to innate, right? The movement that sort of we innately do. Uh, so it's a base state. Um, and when we think about nature, we we're thinking about also like you may have uh you know if you're a conservative christian you're thinking about nature as essentially reflecting the design god's design right so you might hear a, a christian say argue that you know um that a conservative christian might argue that that homosexuality is not natural because because the bible tells them that you know that that, that men shouldn't lay with men and that's that's their uh that's their concept of nature. And then, you know, someone who's coming from a Darwinian frame is gonna respond, well, but hey, this is showing up all over the animal kingdom. So how can you say it's not natural? So we have different frames when we talk about nature. And we also have this tendency to fall into a naturalistic fallacy, which is to claim that because something is natural, it's therefore better, right? And so we don't wanna do that. But the way that I think about it is that natural is opposed to artificial, right? Um, sometimes people will, will kind of expand the, the, the idea of natural in a way that makes it really useless, right? So you could say that a human being is a product of natural processes and everything that, it, that, that we create, therefore, is a creation of us and therefore everything is natural. But then everything, then the word doesn't mean anything anymore. But you can use it as a, um, as a antonym to artificial, right? Right? Artificial is something created by human beings, right? Something that is uh, that is made by art, right? By the art or craft of a human being. So a uh, 
uh, a skyscraper is artificial. A tree is natural, right? And then a tree in a garden that's been crafted in a certain way is kind of somewhere in between. And then we have these weird categories like, what about a termite mound or what about a beaver dam, right? These are products of, of nature's, of some other thing in nature's artifice. Um, but I, I tend to think of it for a human being, it's a useful concept to think, okay, what have we created versus what is sort of inherent? And then the other aspect of that is, um, I'm looking really from an evolutionary frame, right? What is, what are the old friends of human beings? And in this sense, we can ask uh, not just what is sort of evolutionarily true about human beings or what, what did we do, but also what is most relevant to a human being. So typing at a computer is, is a sort of artificial activity. It's something that uh, that comes only because of something that we've created. Walking is something that you have to do. Any human anywhere throughout human history who had normal human function had to walk because that's, that's how you organize this structure to move at a certain pace. Um, so that's an artificial versus natural. But the other aspect of it is what kind of physical activities have been relevant for very long periods of time? So an interesting comparison here is like climbing versus throwing. So in my prioritization of how to train a human being, climbing is more fundamental than throwing because it's been around a lot longer as part of a human's adaptions. So throwing is a super interesting aspect of, of what a human being does because human beings are probably, well, human beings are certainly the most proficient throwers. And it's kind of a superpower that we have. So a human being can throw at least twice as fast as any other animal, right? We can throw twice as hard. And we're the only animal that can throw at a moving object and target where it is, as far as we know. And there's, you know, evolutionary theories that that's one of the main drivers of our cortical evolution. Essentially, we had to begin developing the ability to see into the future, to predict the future, to model the future in order to attain our status as, you know, um, uh, apex predators, because it was throwing that really did that for us. So we can throw and throwing is, is, is this special power that we have, but it's very recent. You know, we've probably only been specialized throwers, say for two, maybe 3 million years. Whereas, um, you know, the latest research seems to show that primates uh, differentiated from other mammals about 90 million years ago, and we're kind of immediately going into the trees. That's, that's what that's the environment that we specialized for. And so we have binocular vision because we're arboreal creatures. We have grasping hands because we're binocular creatures. We developed um, shoulders that have all of this range of motion first in trees. So all apes have this. Monkeys don't have it. Monkeys actually can't really do monkey bar swings. They can't brachiate because their bodies are actually shaped more like a dog. So they have a keel shaped torso and they don't have the shoulder flexibility. So as the, as the primate got bigger and needed to distribute its weight across multiple surfaces, uh, multiple branches, that's when it developed that ability. Now it can suspend itself. So the suspensory behavior with the shoulder doing this, that is the pre-adaption that allowed the, the evolution of throwing. So throwing is what's called an exception of this, this pre-existent capacity of the shoulder. And then that upright positioning, once we're underneath the branch, is also what pre-adapts us for bipedalism. Bipedalism, and that actually was just this has been speculated for a while. But they just had some really—I wish I could remember the the name of the find—but they just had a find that 
is starting to make it very clear that the last common ancestor of chimpanzees, bonobos, and human beings was not a knuckle walker like modern chimps and bonobos, but was actually a bipedal limb walker. So it walked bipedally like we do, but primarily was adapted to walk up in trees. And so, so it's within the trees that we became bipedal animals. So all of this kind of pre-adapts, you know, you can't be a great thrower uh, unless you're an elephant. Um, when you're when you're when you're when all four our hands are on the ground right and you can't be a great thrower if you don't have shoulder mobility so we had shoulder mobility we had bipedalism and that pre-adapts us to this behavior which is unique in, in animal history like every other great predator has to get its claws and its teeth into an animal and all of a sudden we can kill things at range right so unique so so that's a little bit of the evolutionary story but here's the interesting thing um throwing is hard on people People are specialist throwing throwers develop shoulder injuries a lot. Um, and there's, there's not as high a transfer from throwing to other physical activities in my experience as there's from climbing. Someone who's a really good tree climber moves really well. But you know, someone who can throw a 90 mile an hour fastball is not necessarily a beautiful athlete in other ways. Right. And so when we look back through that evolutionary heritage and we say, what is the stuff that's been around for us for the longest period of time that's been continually relevant to us? Um, that's the stuff that we should root our physical practice in. And that's my critique of movement culture and why I talk about natural movement as opposed to movement in general is that I haven't seen a lot of people really wrestling with what is relevant for the specific nature of a human being in movement. And what I see a lot of people doing doesn't look very relevant to me. Handstands are very low on the list of movements that you need to be an adaptable human athlete to solve any kind of actual problem, right? I, I agree. I think that uh, a lot of these things are, I don't know, maybe byproducts of like Instagram, social media type things, as opposed to being like, well, if we're actually going to look at the things that really matter, or the things that maybe we'll even go so far as to say make sense. Yep. Um, they are not as Instagrammable, you know, like they're the things yeah. that aren't going to get the likes um, because they're, they're, they're not as fancy, but I, I've gotten a chance to talk to people like Yuri Marmerstein. I've gotten to talk to Yuval Ayalon and both of them are pretty open. Even when it comes to talking about the Hanson saying like, Hey, like, if you're interested in being a part of like a discipline, if you want to like go through a process of learning a skill, like these are, these are great things, but like also understanding that I think Yuri might've even said like the handstand is still a party trick and yep. it's a cool trick and it's a great thing, but it's not like the meat and potatoes of like what it means to be a human being. The processes can be valuable, but like the end product may not be the thing that like does it for us. Yeah, any, I mean, any physical practice can be a, a heroic journey, right? And can be a window into your character. Anything that you, you push hard on is, is you can learn lessons from it. But if you're really focused on, you know, being a generalist, this isn't, this isn't it's not a high priority skill. And I, I think you're right about the Instagram thing. Um, so I think that the dogma of of movement is fundamentally flawed because it it's um it's without hierarchy right mm -hmm. it's kind of, I, I feel it's kind of postmodern right it's like mm -hmm. 
And, but the weird thing is that we actually just can't be without hierarchy. We're, we like the idea is we're going to throw away all our narratives and somehow that's going to work. And say, like, no, you're always going to adopt narratives. It's just when you think that you're throwing away all the narratives, you make yourself blind to the narratives that you actually have. Right. Right. I mean, Jung said, you know, um, everyone has a God an atheist just doesn't know who their God is. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, it's the same thing with the narrative. Everyone has a narrative, right? If your narrative is there's no narrative, you just don't, you're just blind to what your narrative is. And so, um, so if you say, okay, my dogma is movement, that's great. Well, what, why, why this movement, not that movement? It's like, well, it's all just movement. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happens, right? What happens is you choose certain movements. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think that's a big part of what happens. And then it, it tends to just move in fads. It's just whatever is exciting to people at that time, whatever someone prestigious does. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's this other really, uh, I think there's this weird perverse thing that happens within the idea of the generalist mover um, and the, the, the kind of intersection with, with social media culture, which is that um, as a generalist, you will, so if we think about, we talked about the Pareto distribution, right? You're familiar with Pareto? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Just, you know, for the audience, if they're not familiar with that, the Pareto distribution is basically uh, any distribution where, um, where instead of having a bell curve, or it's not any distribution, but it's a, a specific type of uh, distribution where most of the juice, <laughs> let's say, isn't in the middle, it's on one end of the distribution, right? So classically, people talk about this in economics, right? Uh, the, you know, the money in the United States is, is, is Pareto distributed, right? So, you know, the top three people own 50% of the wealth or, or they own more than 50% of the, the uh, or the bottom 50%. Um, and this shows up over and over again, right? So if you, um, if you, if you look at most companies, you know, 20% of the employees, produce 80% of the output of the company. And if you look at stars, 20% of the stars have 80% of the mass of the stars. And then if you look at the 20% of the stars that have 80% of the mass, you'll find that 20% of them have 80% of the mass of that group, right? So this is, this is the Pareto distribution. And the idea here is that if you're going to, you, you can't practice everything, right? You're, you're not going to be the best boxer, the best sprinter, the best parkour athlete, the best weightlifter, right? So you have to make some sort of choices about what you do. So what you would want to do as an intelligent generalist is to pick the stuff that's going to give you 80% of the benefit. So there's two levels to that. One is pick the, pick the disciplines that have the most benefit, right? So uh, I would like, for instance, CrossFit was one of the earliest models to start thinking about this, at least recently. I would say that kind of the isolationism and reductionism phase of physical culture peaked in the 80s and it was like aerobics and bodybuilding, right? And everything's really separated. And then we start to see the kickback to functional movement and then it really takes off with CrossFit, right? And CrossFit has their, their 10 physical skills, speed, you know, accuracy, agility, coordination, strength, power, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they have, you know, you have to have the phosphagen energy system, the glycolytic energy system, the oxidative energy system, all functional to really be fit. And then they had this idea of the infinite hopper of physical tasks, right? If you imagine that there's an infinite set of random physical tasks, the best athlete is the athlete who performs best across all of them. 
And they said that, that, that the athlete who would have the highest transfer across those domains would be some combination of a gymnast, a weightlifter, and a middle distance runner. So that's a model, right? I think it's, it's, I thought, I think it's really cool because it's a starting place, but I think it's wrong. I think there's a couple problems with it. One is that it doesn't actually just matter whether you're good at your, you have a good, you're good across all the things. It's like, well, are you good at the things that are most important? Right. 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 So are you then kind of questioning kind of like the, the maybe at that their internal hierarchy of what they deemed important? Yeah. So for me, I would replace gymnastics with parkour, right? Mm -hmm. Or parkour and capoeira, right? Um, I would replace, you know, I think you can't talk about a really adaptive athlete without talking about martial arts. So that has to be in there somewhere. And then I would also say that, like, I'm much more intrigued by the ability to run that a running back has or a soccer player has in some ways than I am by a middle distance runner because the middle distance runner has a very, has a really limited set of constraints to solve. And the running back has a lot of constraints to solve. Well, also the running back is dealing with like so much like sensory information, kind of like I spoke to Yosef for a second. He was like, I'm not so interested in running on a track or even running like through like, um, kind of like a like something like a crossfit would set up but he's like what does it mean to run when you're being hunted or when exactly. you're a hunter what does that ask of you and, and i think when you say running back it's actually something similar to to that as well like asking a little bit more of our senses in different types of stresses as well yeah so for me like i have four sort of cardinal physical schools that i think are the fundamentals that that will that have the highest transfer and those are parkour but we have our little adaption of parkour which we take in nature and we think that that makes it even more more adaptive right mm -hmm. um capoeira um team sport and martial arts we actually think those are the four fundamentals that we should have and strength training we we don't place as one of the fundamentals it's it's like a weird thing because we all need it but we need it because our lives were messed up and right. It's like, you shouldn't have to train strength, right? Yeah. You should have, you, that should have been addressed by normal development in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. and, and once it is addressed, you don't, you don't actually need it that much. Right. Like you, like a lot of the best coaches are talking about like strong enough is enough. Mm -hmm. right? There's also, there's also a bit of this, like, and, and, and I love your, your take on this. Cause I, I feel like it's something you've thought about, or at least a direction you're, you're, you seem to be in that there's like a lot of this, uh, especially coming from CrossFit, especially coming from like the background I've come from of like a time in my life doing like two strength sessions a day, lots of upper body gymnastics, is it becomes this like top down approach almost mm -hmm. where it's like we're moving from the hands to the feet. And then there's this realization where like, well, I can do pretty amazing things on my hands, but most of my interactions with this world are on my feet. And sure, I can like walk and run, but I don't move well on my feet and like, well, mm -hmm. what's that about? Because I'm, I'm being asked more often, whether I'm dancing or hiking or trying to do parkour to do things on my feet and, and same with martial arts. 
Yeah. You know, John Donahue is one of my favorite coaches out there. You know, John Donahue? Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, Why would you ignore 50% of the human body? Right. Right. When, when we're learning about jujitsu and how to rip someone apart, you know, it's like, don't ignore 50% of the human body. But when we're thinking about physical culture and we're thinking about like the, the, the body weight strength culture, the gymnastic strength, strength culture, it's like, they're not only ignoring 50% of the human body, it's like, it's more than that because there's more of your muscle mass in that lower body than there is in your upper body, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, you want to be, if you want to, like, what are the types of physical problems that are going to happen in, in like a real life? Like, okay, so uh, hunting, right? killing something uh farming gathering uh fighting um swimming escaping like none of that stuff's going to be that impacted by your ability to do you know a straddle planche right or 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 really a one like a one-arm chin-up even you know what i mean like the these things that are are peak goals it's like I was talking to somebody about the other day. I was like, I don't know. I think if I'm pulling things, if we're talking about really kind of stepping back a few thousand years, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm climbing something, I'm using my feet quite often to like help me climb. I'm not just one arm chinning myself into places <laughs> in the trees, but a lot of pulling would be, I don't know, helping people drag carcasses back, which would be my feet participating in the pulling and, yeah. and understanding how my body communicates to accomplish those kinds of tasks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, so we're, remember, we're suspensory climbing animals too, though, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're, we evolved to be very strong and to, and to have our hand to be hanging from our hand, have great strength hanging from our hand. So I, I, I agree with you, I think, but I also would, would, I just, I would bump that priority up a little bit because okay. the way that we look at it, we've been working a lot on this idea of like, what are, what are your highest priorities and what are your highest priorities? Give, given who you are and where you're at, right? So if we had one, if we want to, like, in our opinion, if there's just one thing that you're going to do, it would be, well, like, you know, do parkour or play. But if you have just an exercise, not, not a movement skill, but just an exercise, the number one exercise you can do is sprint. <laughs> Sprinting will have a broader global impact on every physical metric that you want than anything else, right? Every, every muscle in your body is involved, right? You sprint for hundred yards, all three energy systems are gonna be stressed, right? You're gonna, you're gonna get cardio gains, you're gonna get speed, you're gonna get phosphagen system. You're, you're developing strength, right? If, if you can really run fast, your legs are strong. And we've seen this with the parkour community, right? There are so many parkour athletes who got strong running and jumping and you take them into a gym and they squat double, oh, or they um, deadlift double body weight the first time they ever touch a bar. Your, your arms are involved in sprinting, right? Like you have to use your arms. So every muscle is, is, is being developed. Um, and then we would prioritize, so, but most, a lot of people will hurt themselves if they sprint, right? They're not physically prepared for it. So then we look at loaded squatting or loaded carrying dragging as that next level. Right. That's, that's what we'd look at next because we need to load the legs and we can load the legs in a way that gets us free gains for the upper body. Like why not? Right. So you can actually get stronger at pressing by doing back squats or front squats. Cause you have to pull the damn bar up. Right. Yeah. Right. Or you, you, you can do the same thing with sled dragging. Just, just hold the thing in your hands and you're getting upper body strength gains. Um, 
And then we put pulling next because we're, we're suspensory animals, right? We would place pulling above pushing as an exercise. One, because we can get a lot of our pushing gains from our lower body work. Mm -hmm. And two, because pulling was, was, was generally more critical for us as a suspensory animal, right? That's what saves your, your life if you're falling out of a tree. Mm -hmm. I was, I was then, reading, re I was sorry, I was, I, I'll let you finish that, but it, it reminds me, I was just reading recently, um, Feldenkrais's, um, elusive obvious. And I don't know if like this research has changed at all, but the one thing that we're born with, you know, we have to learn everything, everything, yeah. like we have to learn everything. But the one thing we actually are born with, if we fall is the ability to kind of round to protect our spine and our head. And yeah. it comes from uh, what you're describing of being up in trees. So mm -hmm. like on that, like um, primal level of like one protective mechanism, if we fall out of the tree. Yep. Whereas like other animals are born, like, you know, like a mountain goat can like be born and all of a sudden be balanced on the side of a mountain. We have none of that. But the one thing we do have is like some sort of protection if we start to fall. The other thing is that a baby can like almost immediately grip. Mm. Right. And you can, with a, a very small baby, you can pick it, you can pick it up by its grip. Right. Mm -hmm. And it will start walking actually. We'll start as a walking reflex. Um, with all my kids, like I hung them from my fingers over yeah. and over and over. And so my my uh, my six my six year old boy now can do eleven pull ups. Wow. And he he's he's a very physical kid, so he's like sitting around in he's doing school with you know online for COVID, and he he just started doing a uh, straddled L right because he's he's wiggling and putting himself into straddle down and like you know just boom you know pressing his hips up getting getting some gain right like you know i used to teach gymnastics that's rare right but uh, but you know it's rare because people aren't getting normal movement nourishment i think mm -hmm. but uh but yeah these guys uh recently we built a um a swinging ring setup in our little home gym and the kids have just been having a blast swinging on these rings and like they just love gripping and swinging and hanging um so yeah, so we place a high priority on that. So so that's kind of our our, our schema, right? It's it, you you want to see what the, the things are, and then at every level, it's like, where's that Pareto distribution? What's the thing? If I if I can only do one thing, what am I going to do? Um, so in in the same way, like if you could only do one movement activity, I would I would prioritize parkour because the first thing is the ability to locomote yourself through the through the environment. Right? Mm. And you can think about it this way. Um, in order to lift something, I'm already moving my body, right? Right. In order to hit somebody, I'm moving my body. So it's crazy. I've, you know, I've been like kickboxing since I was 15 years old and I've been doing, you know, Teng Soo Do and Aikido and Kung Fu since I was six, um, you know, one after the other, but, uh, I would go in the kickbox and I'd be training for a while and then I'd take some time off and I'd just be doing parkour. And I come back and train with one of my old training partners. So I had this one training partner who like went to Thailand and trained with the Thais, you know, super into Muay Thai. And so he comes back and you can, you can tell that his skills are more refined than mine, but he still can't handle me mm -hmm. because, because I can move in and out of spaces more dynamically than he can. Mm. And so the fact that like, when I put my foot on the ground, I have mm. so much more elasticity that built up through parkour. 
makes all sorts of things possible for me in getting out and, and hitting and getting out of getting hit um, that aren't possible for athletes who don't have that elasticity. And martial arts generally won't develop it for you, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're not going to go into a kickboxing class as a, at least as a well-developed athlete or like, a, or at least a moderately developed athlete and find that it's improved your, your, um, your standing broad jump, right? Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is that if your standing broad jump improves and your footwork improves and your, your speed and power improves, your kickboxing improves because, because when you need to get to the other guy, you're relying on the power of your legs and your speed and agility coordination to push you into that space. And when you put your foot down and need yeah. to push yourself away when someone's trying to hit you, well, how much force do you have to put into the ground? Right. And, and then that's also, what I found it, it also sounds like there's like a certain amount of like feeding your like creative potential by like um, exploring these places that again are kind of like constantly satisfying like the need for like surprise for like our, our intelligence or maybe our big S self. I don't know what it is, but like the more that that's fed, like the, the, the better predictions you can make in different scenarios where it's like, if it's almost, uh, if it's, if, if it's only existing in one dimension and maybe if it's also like very technique heavy, there's not a lot of space to like fill it in with like the, the things we can't put words on all the time. But if we're kind of exploring that space of like the undefined on a pretty regular basis, when we kind of step into defined worlds and worlds with technique, we also have like some other paintbrushes to like fill in some of the defined lines. Mm -hmm. Um, The best the best athlete is the best movement problem solver. Mm-hmm. There's a specific aspect to that to within any of the sport. And then there's a generalist aspect to that. How good are you at solving problems? And the interesting thing about something like parkour is that it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a, pro- well, all of them are problem solving activities, right? Soccer is a problem solving activity. Kickboxing problem solving activity, parkour gymnastics is, but, um, what are the central problems that you have to solve and how closely do they relate or how much insight do they generate that's transferable to some other set of problems that you might face? So, um, standing on a a slack line doesn't actually teach much about balancing on flat ground. So you're, you're looking for that and asking, what is that? And what can we observe about which athletes do transfer it best? So CrossFit made the claim that gymnasts learn sports faster than other athletes, which is why gymnasts is at the base of their, their movement hierarchy. Um, I think they got gymnastics wrong because they don't actually use this problem solving aspect of gymnastics particularly. They just use the calisthenic aspect of gymnastics. And I think that that's not why gymnasts are good at solving problems to the degree that they are. Yeah. But the problem with gymnastics as a problem-solving activity is that it is not alive, right? Mm-hmm. Every every problem that you're solving is uh, it's not emergent in the moment; it is predefined, right? You can do a half twist now; you go for a full twist, right? Right. Um, it's not I'm in the air and I have to twist and figure out where the ground is, or I have to figure out how to do it. So this is why I like capoeira because capoeira is acrobatics; it's mm-hmm. ground acrobatics and air acrobatics. But you have to, but you have a live problem solving aspect to it. You also have a relationship to a partner, and a relationship to music that are all built into the as, uh, the aspect. And this is what the uh, we kind of jumped ahead there. But uh, this was the insight that I had when I spoke to Cirque du Soleil, uh, Soleil coordinator in 2006 at a gymnastics conference, 
And we talked about that idea that CrossFit had the gymnasts were the, the, the athletes who learned sports, learned new tasks fastest. And he said, gymnasts are good at learning new things and parkour athletes and are good at it. Um, but the best athletes that we have in Cirque at solving a new problem are the capoeiristas. Really? Interesting. I've, I've found that, um, you know, in it, I think it actually falls in kind of a similar realm where it's like anytime I cross paths with somebody who comes from like a wrestling background, like if they wrestled as a kid or if they come from a dance background, similar yeah. because I actually think that like in some ways they're, they're, they're tiptoeing around the similar ideas, right? They're also like, they're, they're complex, these, these activities. They're not just complicated, right? It's almost like exactly. gymnastics is really complicated, but complexity is like, when you were talking about anti-fragile, I kept yep. having that kind of come to my head. Maybe it's because I listened to someone else talk uh, about it a little bit, but like complexity is something that's like alive and changing and dynamic. Complicated things are like, yeah, obviously there's there there's intricacies and, and they're, they're specific in a lot of ways, but like it's not, doesn't have that like aliveness, never like changing yeah. environment to it. Yeah, so we talk about two aspects of problems, right? So if we're talking about the idea that a, that a movement, that, a, that the best mover is the best movement problem solver, mm -hmm. well, pr problems come in kind of a, let's call it two dimensions, right? There's the um, complicated to complex dimension, right? And then I guess there's a level of difficulty in each, but uh, complicated problems have clear solutions. And, um, and complex problems don't have, or we could say that complicated problems have stable solutions and complex problems don't have stable solutions. So a classic example of a complicated problem is a problem that is like building a rocket ship, right? It's engineering. You can, you can put it together. And if you, it's hard, it's hard to understand how to put it together, but once you understand it and you go through all the steps, you get the output that you're supposed to get. Um, uh, in, Algorithm, the term algorithm is actually uh, designed to describe, or the original meaning of that is anything that is something that gives you a precise solution. So complicated problems have algorithmic solutions, but complex problems don't. They actually have heuristic solutions. The, they're combinatorial explosive. There's no way that you can understand the entire problem set or the pro problem uh, space. So you're always using some set of heuristics to guide you through that space. So parenting is a complicated problem. So I would say that that physical culture, physical culturists are not engineers, we're gardeners, right? We're parents, right? It's not, there is no, uh, there's no one size solution. There's no precise, right? Like I cannot give you a template that will absolutely create this one thing in your body. And athletes will do the same thing and get different results on different days because we're a complex ecology of different systems. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it. The other is ill-defined versus well-defined problems. So a well-defined problem has a clear beginning and a clear end point. Right? An ill-defined problem doesn't have either of those. Yeah, it's almost like the, the, I keep hearing this in my head as you're talking where it's almost like if we're talking about complicated, it's a little more mechanical. It's very linear, right? Beginning, middle, and end. And it's also in some ways very Western. Um, mm -hmm. and like where we're at, whereas the things that we're talking about and what I feel like you're describing and also your approach to practice and teaching kind of embodies playfulness and it can be serious or it can be 
fun and laugh and whatever, but like within playfulness, um, there's kind of a capturing of complexity, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, there's uncertainty and there's surprise and there's discovery. And as you play, and I'm not talking about games that have ends to them, I'm talking about games that are just played to be played like parkour and things like that is, um, is that, is that thing. It's, it's feeding that complexity. And, and, and the more you play the game, the more you start to discover, as you said, like the heuristics, right? These rules of thumb that kind of start to benefit you in this play, but none of them are exact answers. They're just getting to be like better predictions. Right. And maybe it's, it's, it's difficult for people to tiptoe through a world being like, all I'm ever going to get is better predictions. I'm never going to have answers. Yep. That's why seemingly algorithmic solutions are so attractive. And I mean, I think that's the problem. has been a major problem in physical culture, but it's a problem in our culture in general, which is that um, essentially an engineering mindset Mm -hmm. or an algorithmic mindset is something that we have applied with extraordinary power. We have, you know, we have nuclear weapons, we have, uh, need for the power. We've got airplanes, right? We've got uh, Zoom, right? All of this yeah. was built through engineering, right? And so we've fallen in love with the power of reductionism, and we we have had trouble recognizing that a lot of problems, the intractable problems, are the problems that don't actually respond to that type of thing because they're complex. We haven't been able to to, to describe that. So that's where complexity science comes in, dynamical systems and ecological psychology, right? All these things are basically pointing the way to a new science of understanding systems that don't have algorithmic solutions. You're but, a, you're, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, but we're still kind of just running on the realization of what that looks like, right? It's, 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 our, our culture is still largely stuck in the, there's gonna be an algorithmic solution to this problem. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's um, it's funny that you you're talking about this because I was when I was chatting with Marlo, probably the time I saw her and she said I should reach out to you. I said to her, I was like, oh, you know, like what what do you think isn't talked about enough in movement culture? Yeah. Um, just because I think like you, I mean, she's like a real thinker about yeah. all things movement. And her answer was pretty profound. And I think it's also something that I think you'll agree with. And it's kind of what you're saying. Uh, in some ways. Um, She said, I don't think that we talk enough about how our teaching and our practice can reflect the changes we want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about just simply in physical culture, some of the things that should be reflective of like how we should be approaching the world and approaching life and, and, and these things. And it it, it sounds like a, a similar idea here. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, my realization around my approach to physical culture is that um, the external achievement is ephemeral, right? It, mm-hmm. It's um, it's only meaningful to the degree that we give it. And so, if the the practice isn't translating, isn't creating meaning for us, then it's not doing what it needs to do. Um, so, I actually think that that physical culture, that body practices are the most profound means that we have of transforming ourselves as individuals. Um, that they're the best foundation for self-transformation. But we 
we don't respect that capacity. We don't invest in that capacity, and our call, our phys, our approach to physicality, uh, actually, um, is contrary to that in a lot of ways because we we conceptualize the body as other to the self, right? And so we think of the body as a vehicle that we move around, and we want a nice vehicle, right? Rather than viewing it as part of the process of the self and as the most foundational place in which we can engage in improving how that self is becoming something because it's only a physical practice that we have the ability to integrate the body and physicality with the emotional layer and the psychological layer and the spiritual layer if we you know uh if we want to talk about that layer that's a uh, my conceptualization there gets a little bit uh complex because i'm a non-theist and don't exactly believe in spirit the way that other people talk about it. But, uh, but I do think that it is a layer that, that we're dealing with. And um, when we, when we can integrate those things and we can intentionally use that practice as a means of self transformation, um, I think that that is maybe the most profound solution that we have to facing, you know, what uh, my friend John Ravakey calls the meaning crisis, right? Mm-hmm. which is the sense that we're deeply alienated and disconnected. And we don't, we don't have the, the vision or the capacity to actually start solving the problems that we need to. So my, my, my belief is that we need to build better problem solvers. Mm-hmm. You need to understand what it means to create a human who solves problems well. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear your your thoughts on on some of these spiritual aspects because I think I've I've thought about it quite a bit as well. Um, I will say before we get to it that when you talk about a little bit of like physical culture and 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 kind of almost like a bit of I don't know a separation from like the 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 big S self and we almost use it as this like a illusion of control. Right, that like we're we're that we're not existing in an uncontrollable world, or that we're not existing in like a random world, or, or that we're not existing in a world where we're gonna die. Like, look how much control I have over my body. Like, I've got this. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought about about that. But the spiritual piece, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I've read a, a number of like uh, the the like yoga scriptures, and I think that a lot of the things that they're describing is the world we exist in um, because much of what they're talking about, uh, frankly, all of it has nothing to do with postures or asanas or, or anything. It's really talking about the exploration of consciousness and uh, perhaps that's kind of the direction you're headed in terms of, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, where should I start? The, a realization that I, so I've been evolving in a certain direction, I guess, for a while and haven't exactly known where I was going. Um, but I found parkour and it made my life really meaningful, but there was something that wasn't quite complete about it. And then I, I, I kind of, I think that I borrowed the meaning system of elite sport and tried to install it in parkour, but ultimately that wasn't satisfying to me. So I, I curated some of the first parkour competitions in the world. I had all these smart goals, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, time sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then I ran to this point where I could recognize that in order to compete successfully, which was my putative goal, 
I needed to train primarily indoors because that was where the competitions were happening. But I was totally unmotivated to train indoors and I was highly, highly motivated to move in nature because that was what was beautiful to me. So ultimately I had to make a decision to follow what was motivating to me. And then I really dive deep into play and kind of a sense of formlessness, right? You know, uh, looking for the way that cannot be named, right? Mm-hmm. And that was really powerful and I, I got a lot out of it, but there came a point where, where it was too formless, right? Where I needed, I needed directionality. Yeah. And, yeah. and I started articulating my own philosophy around this concept of building the self. And I started noticing that the stories that I told were profound, were more motivational and more meaningful to my students than the scientific research that I could share with them about physical practice. And so I got really interested in the, in, in narrative and the power of narrative. And then I encountered Jordan Peterson and I went really deep down the Jordan Peterson rabbit hole. I, you know, consumed like 240 hours of his content and then read the maps of meaning book. And, um, and that, took me a long way, right? Uh, and then I encountered John Verveke, who I mentioned earlier, and that, you know, added another layer to it. And as I kind of matured into this idea of meaning and this idea of like, well, it's not the jump, it's what the jump does to you. I had people start telling me that, you know, that I was like a spiritual teacher, right? And I was always cringed really deeply when they said that because I'd grown up in the hippie community around lots of people who came out of yoga and I saw lots of abuse of this spiritual idea. And I found that a lot of people uh, use the concept of spirituality to, to basically be intellectually dishonest, right? To be able to manipulate concepts without having to cl- create clarity about what they were actually saying in order to make themselves feel good or in order to put themselves in power over other people. And so I, be, I became very allergic to the term spiritual. Mm-hmm. But through talking to John and other people, I started, uh, started, you know, again, we were like, you know, John told me that basically what I'd done was created a church, right? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. Um, but I started, I started playing with it and I ran into this book. I've got it right here. Uh, for, no, I took it out, but it's uh, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And it's an exploration of phenomenology, specifically in relationship to our experience of the natural world. And he, he talks about the fact that essentially, I mean, the, the whole idea of phenomenology is that whatever science tells us, we always experience the world through our own perspective first, right? And so um, like my... <laughs> Uh, Jonathan Pajot says, most of the time, the sun circles the earth, right? That's your experience of the world, right? Your experience is sun comes up, sun goes down. Your experience isn't the earth rotates and, and the sun moves across the sky because of it. And what, what David Abrams talks about that and referencing the work of Merleau-Ponty is, and, and, you know, Heidegger is that science in some ways has asked us to, or the adoption of the scientific worldview has alienated us from the, the, the experience from our own lived experience. And so we need to somehow find a balance between phenomenology and, you know, empiricism and rational materialism. Um, and so I was reading that and I'm trying to remember, the specific passage or something by David Abram in combination with uh, C.S. Lewis and also um, 
John Young and his book, uh, What the Robin Knows. But he's talking about the idea that of of how we experience the world as having agency, right? That's our that that in some fundamental way, we are all animists in our perceptual experience of the world. And 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 I was reading John Young in his book What the Robin Knows. He talks about how there's all these signals in the natural world that are telling you what's going on. And and so I had this realization that. That, that, that that's kind of like maybe a good way to conceptualize spirit, right? So if you're walking through the woods and all the birds go quiet, right? You can think of the birds as a shared neural network in the same way that your brain is a neural network, right? And that, that neural network is signaling to you that there's a predator in the environment, right? If you're attuned to it. And if you have, if you're, if you're a pre-modern non-scientific person, maybe the most adaptive way to deal with your capacity to perceive and recognize those signals is to think of it as an agency, as a consciousness like your own, right? So that there, you could think of the birds, there's an individual bird, and then there's a group of birds. And the group of birds has a, has a consciousness, not a consciousness, but it has an intelligence that is unique to the group, not the individual. Right. And you can think of that as the spirit of the birds. And then you can think of yourself as being better or, or worse able to connect to that spirit. And I would, I would say that if you can, if you can connect to the spirit of the birds better, um, you'll find your life is more meaningful and more interesting. And let me, let me continue here for a yeah. second. Yeah. Um, you can think of the birds as having this signaling going on. And then that, that signaling is also part of the broader ecology of all of the animals. And then that's also part of the, 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 the trees, right? So the trees are telling you what's happening with the soil and what's happening with the weather and what's happening with, with bugs and parasites going on. And most of that, you're not going to be able to con process at a conscious level. It's going to have to arise for you from a subconscious intuitive place. And so having a relationship that it respects those, those, those signals is really powerful. And so for me, that's where a physical practice, a nature connection practice, even a community dialoguing practice becomes a place where you're tapping into the spirit because the spirit is those things that transcend the individual or the, 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 the element within the system. And I'm not making a claim and don't really believe that those things necessarily have our conscience in the same way that we experience conscious, but they are intelligent, right? There's an intelligence in an ecology. There's an intelligence in, uh, in a neural network of birds or animals. And, and we have the capacity to tune into that. And that's something that, that I think indigenous people we're way more tuned into. It's something that that I think that um, Western imperialism and rationalism has has desensitized us to um, to our detriment. So um, that, that's a brief sort of entry point into my own little world on the spiritual and how I think it intersects with physical practice. I first, I totally agree. Um, sure. Yeah, um, and I think it, 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 it's it in some ways actually clarifies and, I, and speaks to the the way I was referring to intelligence when we kind of first started speaking. 
Um, and when you speak of like uh, uh, indigenous cultures, the stuff that I've read, I, I, I hear it as like participating of like you're an organism, organism, but you're more of like a cell within a larger organism that has its own version of like consciousness or whatever we're going to call it. And you, we are participatory, participatory as opposed to like fighting it. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I think of the stuff I've read again about in, in, um, these types of cultures, like that's being a part of it in all these different ways. We're feeding, they're feeding their intelligence through so many sensory experiences that they're, really connected and in, in, in part of like the the broader harmony as opposed to like an individual experience whereas as you said the there's something about western culture that 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 is like disconnected from that and i think it comes around to us being really fixated on knowledge as opposed yeah. to intelligence and i know you threw the word anti-fragile out there so i think you've read some taleb but i'm pretty sure he's the one who said we tend to treat knowledge as therapy, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we, 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 we do this knowledge gathering thing, like collecting thing almost to like make our seal, again, make ourselves feel safe in an uncontrollable and random world when what we should be doing is embracing the, the, the randomness and uncertainty and kind of feeding our innate intelligence that that is already there. The same way you said that like the birds have the intelligence and it's there, but the way they exist, they're constantly feeding it. It's almost as though somewhere after a certain age for most people, we, they stop feeding the intelligence and instead start gathering knowledge. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with John Verveke? No. Okay. Well, you're going to really dig him. So okay, you, cool. Awakening from the main crisis, but he proposes that there are four ways of knowing, right? And that we are disconnected from meaning because we have lost access to three of the four, right? So the four ways of knowing are propositional, uh, procedural, perspectival, and participatory. Mm -hmm. So a, a prop propositional knowing is semantic, right? It's a rule. It's um, you know. Uh, I before E except after C, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's to do a Kong vault, you have to swing your arm, you have to dive off both legs, swing your arms forward and pass your knees between your, your, your hands. So you can have a perfect description semantically of that. And it doesn't mean that you can do it. Right? So then procedural is the routine, the actual ability to do it. Then perspectival is what does the world look like when you can do that thing or you know that thing, really, right? Um, so we, we discover something interesting when you teach people parkour in a gym, they don't necessarily develop a perspective on how the natural world or the urban world affords them the capacity to use these movements, right? They lack the perspectival knowledge. And then participatory is um, how that thing, how your relationship with that process or that knowledge transforms you over time. So one example I like to think is like a rule, a, pr a pr propositional rule would be something like, you know, mothers should feed their babies when they cry or like the inmates, right? Um, and then a routine is like how you actually breastfeed, which turns out to be hard, right? Mm -hmm. and the perspective is like, what does it feel like to be a mother whose milk has let down, who has a baby who's crying, right? And like every mother can kind of understand the experience of every other mother in that way. Mm -hmm. But then there's the individual relationship between the mother and the child and the relationship and how that transforms the woman and how it transforms the child over time. And that is 
is unique and nobody else can fully understand that that place right that's the participatory aspect so, so somewhere along the line in western culture we have fallen in love with the propositional right and the, the propositional uh well science is propositional science is about getting your propositions right and it's extraordinarily powerful in what it allows us to do but our sense of meaning in life is derived from the other three so so we're missing it so we have to recover those lost ways of knowing um that's you know a big part of his message and mm, there's something else in, in what you said that i wanted to respond to uh but but that sense of the of of having access to those i think it had a lot to do with with the um with the perspective you were sharing yeah yeah i it's something I've spent a lot of time with and something I, I don't know, maybe we've gone through certain kind of like um, evolutions and kind of changes in perspective. And I don't know, I, I feel like we, we've gone through some, some similar things in, in the way we see this. And I've, I don't know, it's, it's transcended into a lot of things. So I'm curious then also, like, I think of movement quite a bit uh, as like an artistic endeavor um, sure. more so than, than anything else really. Um and I think people often have like a narrow perspective of art. Maybe it's just like the image that comes to mind is like Picasso or some sort of like sculptor or something. But art to me is so broad. You know, you can look at great athletes and, and performers or even just watching someone hike down a complex trail and, and see the artistry in it. Um, yeah. And I think to myself, well, a couple of things. First is that kind of intersection of technique and spirit a little bit and, and, and how to approach that, which I think is a, a challenging thing. And I've gotten exposed to some people who have given me some revelations about that, like a Tom Wexler. Um, and also I got to speak to someone recently and he was really critical of um, cr personal creative expression and, and saying that, you know, that's a really individualized way of like approaching art and was just like, well, what, what does it mean if we approach art as a citizen as opposed to an individual? And I don't know, and I know they're almost like two kind of separate ideas, but I'm curious about, um, about your thoughts on, on you know, the, the technique and spirit intersection, that subjective objective world where things kind of collide to, to create things. And then also maybe, you know, how you feel about approaching things as an individual versus as a citizen or, or how to approach some of these concepts as a citizen, if that's something that you think is interesting. Yeah, I want to start with the first one because I think I have something to be interesting there. So we talked about animism and the sense that uh, the indigenous cultures, the, the identity of the individual is sort of subsumed, right? The individual is not, is not that high in the ranking system, right? Um, one of my teachers, Frank Francich, has a book called The Long Body, which is about that idea, right? Where do you end, right? Do you end at your skin or what about your relationships? What about your history? What about all these things that have happened? Like in reality, like as you breathe in and breathe out, you're participating with everything else in the world. Like you're, you know, you're exchanging uh, gases with the world. You're, you're, you're constantly shedding, like literally bacteria is falling off your body at every moment and bacteria is colonizing your body at every moment. And you have more bacterial cells than you have human cells. Right. And you know, every, uh, every tissue in your body is made up of, of atoms and molecules that have been cycling through an environment for, you know, 
forever, right? Like you're stardust. Um, and having this perspective is really powerful. Uh, so, so there's something that we need to recapture from that, I think. And it, yet at the same time, there's something about the, the value of the individual and the rise of individualism that is incredibly important and powerful and that has that has given Western culture some of its most valuable things. So um, I've been very inspired by, uh, by Christianity, right? Through Jordan Peterson, through John Verveke, through Jonathan Peugeot and other folks, like I've really come to respect how deep and unique the insight of the Christian narrative is and the reality of how historically unique it has been to treat each individual as if they have worth and as if they have the potential to contribute to the good of the world. Right? So there's something there about you have to treat the individual. Right? And I think that there's a, there's a way to, um, a way to navigate the tension between I, th I think it's the rise of the individual that is the reason why we don't think it's okay to eat our neighbors anymore, right? Right. 104 tribes have this amazing, sensual, complete, like embodiment, embeddedness in their in the in the nature, and they also generally think that it's okay to eat their neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like the levels of violence that are endemic to most hunter fortress societies are things that would horrify us, and we we, we tend not to recognize that. Um, and yeah, there's something that's extraordinarily disconnected about our culture and where there's this search for something authentic and connected where we, you know, like, um, I was in this town in Spain and it was this beautiful place that, that had this sense of history that went back 2000 years of people living the same lifestyle and, and the people just, they weren't, they weren't the same cosmopolitan, Westerners that you encountered in every other city, right? Like I feel like sometimes when I go from city to city teaching, it's like I'm not in different countries. I'm in the same, the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Everything, everything's been homogenized. But it's like here in southern Spain, it wasn't homogenized. There's a sense of deep authenticity and connection there. And I was thinking, and I, I was staying with a British guy who I love and who's a wonderful member of the community there, but like he was there because of that, right? And I was like, well, how many British guys moved there because of that before it's no longer there? And I feel like Westerners are like pillaging the world for the sense of authenticity. Right? Mm -hmm. We're looking for it. We're going to Bali. We're going to Costa Rica. We're going to Spain. We're going to, you know, wherever. And we're like, oh man, these people have authentic connected lives. Like let's all show up here and set up a hippie village and then we destroy it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we're, we're craving it. We're craving something there and we need to bring it back into our culture. Um, and yet, a lot of times we don't necessarily realize what is valuable about our own culture that we're blind to, I think. And I think that the way to navigate that tension is through this idea of complexification. And complexification happens when you're able to both um, differentiate and unify and integrate, right? So um, when you're, uh, when you're, when, 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 uh, when a baby begins to form, right? When a sperm and an egg come together, they start as a cell and then the cell separates. And then the cell separates into the endoderm, the mesoderm, the ectoderm, right? It separates into these systems. Uh, 
and then those systems develop. So you have different muscular structures, the musculoskeletal system, and then the different, you know, the different muscles separate from each other. But the muscle, the muscle isn't a functional thing without fascia and ligament and bone and nerve and blood. And so all those systems have to integrate in order for the thing to work. So we're, we're always in this, in order to grow, in order to become more sophisticated things, we have to recognize the capacity to differentiate and to differentiate in a way that allows us to come back into integration. So we're always doing that. And I think we can see movement as an analogy for this. Like a really beautiful mover has the capacity to differentiate aspects of their system and use it in really specific ways and then to have that unified, right? One of the things that, that I noticed about Marlo when I first met her was that it was like she had more bones than other people have. Mm -hmm. Because so many different capacities in her system are articulated, right? She can move, she can move her spine in more ways than other people can, right? If you look at like a, um, an animation dancer, right? That ability to create these incredibly fine tuned, small joint things in the body, that's fundamental to what they do. But then in, in order for it to have an effect, that has to be coordinated with a whole image that's created with the body, which creates the impact on the individual. So I think um, the point I'm trying to, to arrive at here is that we don't need to reject the individualism of Western culture. We need to put it um, in relationship with that sense of the collective of the long body that is so valuable from indigenous cultures let's say have you have you listened to any i only got turned on to him recently um i think his name is daniel schmachtenberger yes yeah yeah uh, I, some of what you were saying kind of like reflects what what he talks about where it's almost like let's not deny all the things that we have now and all the, yep. the, the the tools that we've created with our technology and things like that, but like, how can we actually use those things to kind of almost like reintegrate the, the the knowledge that we've had for thousands of years? Like, how do we let them like collaborate with one another to help, you know, facilitate this thing as opposed to using our technology to like um, continue fighting against one another, mm -hmm. trying to win something. Yes, we have to we have to be able to, to figure a default how to get out of zero sum games. Mm -hmm. So uh, he did a, a series with rebel wisdom called the war on sense making. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with like Verveke and, and Peterson, like uh, that, that, that first one, the first in that series, like, I think about more in relationship to the social problems that we have and the kind of like, geopolitical problems that we have. Currently, that like I always just sort of return to that particular particular thing, but are, are you familiar with integral philosophy and uh, and uh, Ken Wilber? No. Right. The idea of integral philosophy is that there's you know basically adult developmental levels that we go through, and the the ultimate level is when we can actually integrate the levels below us. Right. So 
the, the two levels that are most sort of relevant right now to the, a lot of people are the, the modernist layer and the postmodernist layer. The modernist layer is globalizing, you know, homogenizing, uh, science-oriented, rational, and, you know, grand narrative, right? Um, and then the, the postmodern layer is, is particular rejection of the, that um, diversity, you know, um, environmentalism, skepticism of science, a lot of these things, right? And then mm -hmm. the idea here is that there's a layer in which we we can we can see that there's truth at all of these layers and truth even below that right because below the below the the modern layer is like the 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 mythic layer and the magical layer and these other layers and that that we don't really get to solving some of these problems until we can actually see that there's insight and that, that we have that we have a necessity to be able to think in all of these layers um so I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't know Ken Wilber's work that well. And I, you know, I don't know that I'm convinced by every element of the model, but that basic idea is very compelling to me that, that there are, that we, we don't, there's no going back, right? We don't get to go back to a pre-modern world. We have to be able to carry the, the heritage of modernity forward. And I think we have to be able to carry, carry the heritage of the mythic structure and the, of, of, uh, of Christianity forward, honestly, for us in the West. Um, that doesn't mean that the Christianity or the science that, that comes in the next phase is the same as what came before, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we can solve the problems by rejecting those things. Right. And I think that's a lot of postmodernism ends up just sort of in, in various ways, sort of trying to, to reject and then defaulting towards like states of consciousness that maybe are, are, are worse and more destructive and more zero self. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and we need to, so we need to, you know, we're not going to solve the environmental prob problem by like all going back to being hunter foragers. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Uh, and we're not going to solve the problem of, of individuals competing by like going back to being one tribe. It's like, that's not possible at the scale of humanity. Mm -hmm. So somehow we have to include the, the most important insights of all of those layers and then be able to see beyond what they have offered us because the modern layer has provided tools that are so powerful that unless we develop the wisdom to use them, we will destroy ourselves. And that's, I think, the center of Schmachtenberger's argument. And I think I completely agree with him. Um, and I believe that that um, that creating embodied problem solvers <laughs> is actually central to that solution. I I love uh, I love Peterson. I love Ariki. I love Daniel. I love all these guys. Um, and there's part of me that also sees a little bit of Nietzsche's intellectual in all of them. And you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, Ravaki has. Uh, you know, is very much an advocate for physical practice. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is because of who I, how I'm seeing them, right? I'm seeing them as disembodied heads talking to each other. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't think that you get virtue if you don't make it something that happens in the body. Right. 
Well, it makes me think. So I, I just posted a podcast yesterday with um, Stephen Jenkinson. Are you, are you familiar with him? Uh, no, I don't think so. He wrote a book called Die Wise. So he, he worked in like what he calls the death trade. So palliative care for a long time, but also uh, has a degree in theology and, and has another degree from University of Toronto in, in uh, I forget what the other degree is, but a lot of kind of his thinking is built around kind of indigenous approaches and getting to talk to him was just a really special thing. He's, he's probably almost twice my age. Um, you know, it's a rare circumstance where you get to talk to somebody who feels wise in that way. And he is really involved and an active participant in the things that he creates and builds, you know, like a, you know, he's a expert canoe builder and he's a sculptor and won in some sort of some awards in like architecture. And so he's really participatory, participatory in a physical way in his way of life. And, um, and that seems like a pretty deep root in, in his understanding of being, uh, a participant in nature or in community or, or in his home. Um, and some of what he said, it reminds me of what, what you're talking about as well, but it brings me around to this idea that he talks about in his book of, um, of obedience, right? And it's a term that I think in, in Western culture is like, we don't like that word. You know, we don't yeah. like the, like the idea of, like, yeah, yeah, like we're supposed to obey, but he's almost, he said, and he talked about it in the podcast as well, just being like, well, if we are going to participate in this world, there are, there is a certain amount of obedience to, that we have to obey, you know, like the, the birds that you were talking about earlier, they're free, but to a certain extent, right? There is, there are rules that they have to obey by, by whether certain weather patterns or predators or, or pick the thing. And, you know, the, the, the less connected we are to our environment. And, and, and I think about you saying that like you want, like you were doing parkour and you were inside, but you're like, there's something missing. And I'm sure it's a multitude of things, but there, to me, I hear a little bit of that as well, where it's like, it's not questioning or challenging the obedience as well of being like, well, when I'm in, in the natural world or whatever we want to call define that as we have to respect it with a certain amount of obedience. Um, whether it's doing parkour outside when the weather is unfavorable or, 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 you know, when the trees are this way instead of that way, I don't know. It, it, there's, there's, there's something to that term and, and, and respecting that as opposed to trying to like control everything. Um, are you familiar with Highland's quote about um, specialist is for insects? No. Great quote, right? Man should be able to con a ship, butcher a hog, cook a gourmet meal, program a computer, um, plan an invasion, t give orders, take orders, right? Um, there's a bunch of other ones. But it's all about how we're supposed to, you know, you know, we're supposed to be generalists, right? They, they, not just the physical generalist, but the human generalist. Yeah, and and one of the things he says, but one of the things he says there is, you need to be able to give orders and take orders, right? Die, die, live gallantly and die bravely. Um, but uh, I think we have a cult of leadership and a cult of re of rebellion in our in our culture, 
right? Everyone's supposed to be a rebel. Everyone's supposed to be a leader. Everyone's supposed to be, you know, on the cutting edge of something. And it's like, you know, there's no chiefs if there's not any Indians, right? It's like, I'm happy to be an Indian for Jordan Peterson and John Bravaki and Daniel Schmachtenberger and who and, uh, and, and, you know, other people. I think we need, we need to, we need to subsume ourselves in, in other things and other processes and other tribes. And we need to be willing to, to, uh, to be followers. Um, and I think that's actually part of what's really beautiful in the Christian story, right? It's, it's a story about, uh, um, it, it gives people something to be in submission to, right? to be in, in a relationship with something that is greater than themselves. And I think that, it, that, that individualism without that sense of, of the transcendent uh, is narcissism. And I think we're a deeply narcissistic culture. Uh, so um, with that said, I am supposed to meet people in 20 minutes to go train. Um, I, I totally understand. This has a, been a, a fantastic conversation. And I understand more now why Marlo was like, I think you need to talk to Rafe. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, um, you know, it was, it was clear. It was a mutual exploration of things that were really deeply engaging for both of us. And that's, sometimes you get an interview where people are just asking the same questions they've been asked a million times. And this was not yeah. that. So. Well, I, I always like, um, I look forward to conversations when it's like, or I walk away feeling great when it wasn't just a conversation, but it felt like two people wondering about things. Yeah. And I felt like that's what this was, or it's like, Oh, we're just, we're both kind of like asking questions of things. Um, yeah. Before I send you on your way, is there anything or any way that people can connect with you uh, who are interested in, in, in what you're up to or, or even practicing with you or anything? Absolutely. Uh, EvolvementPlay.com is our website. Um, we have a program available right now, which is designed to be done in winter. Uh, it's the Evolvement Play Foundations program. And it is basically an introduction to physical culture that that includes all of these elements, right? That includes mindfulness, movement, uh, community, and and uh, connection to nature. Um, and it's very scalable. It's available for, you know, it's, it's good for all levels and it gives you access to our academy and chatting with everybody and being on calls regularly with us. So there's lots of, uh, lots of value in that. And we'll give you a link and um, you can put that in the show notes. Um, we're on social media, uh, Rafe Kelly on Instagram, Rafe Kelly on Facebook, Rafe Kelly on, uh, on YouTube. And, uh, you know, um, Rafe at Evolve Move Play, if he wants to email me, ask questions, or uh, look at other ways to work together. Nice. Dude, as soon as uh, we're all traveling again, I will make sure Seattle is one of my first destinations. And uh, hey, I know you've got kids and you got a lot of things going on, but uh, don't hesitate. If you ever want to hop on a call at some point when we're not recording, I'm, I think we have a lot more to talk about. Sounds good. Talk to all you, right, pal. Man. Have a good day.